Um, I'm not going to keep you any longer now, um, uh, Mr. Compton Mackenzie, and once more I wish to congratulate everyone concerned for a splendid performance. Well, uh, Mr. Minister, Mr. Chairman, Reverend Fathers, Ladies and gentlemen, well, it's been a really grand evening. I think that, first of all, we must admit. And that the, 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 the man who's... Um, here he is. Look at him. <laughs> that was the opening of Sir Compton Mackenzie's speech after the performance of Bell's Rose of Castile on the very first night of the Wexford Festival on the 1st of November, 1951. The man referred to was, of course, Dr. Tom Walsh, without whose vision of mind Wexford's and indeed Ireland's international standing in the world of music would be greatly diminished. And Wexford, when I was very young, was a very dull country town. And one of the reasons why I loved going to the theatre, because opera came from the theatre to me, but why I loved going to the theatre was that there was light there. Now, you see, if you take, if you take a town like Wexford when I was young, one had gas in, say, the first two floors who lived as I still live in a three-storey house, you had gas on the first two floors, which wasn't very bright anyway, but one went to bed with a candle or a lamp. And when the electricity goes nowadays and I have to try and read or write with a lamp or candle, I, d I don't know how it was possible that anybody could survive, but that is not right. You went to the theatre and there was a, what seemed to be a blaze of light and it was coloured light. But that blaze of coloured light may have blinded Dr Tom Walsh to the problems in the theatre which eventually arrived in his lap in the early 1950s. A lesser man might have succumbed. George Redmond, who tuned pianos in the theatre from 1938 onwards, recounts some of the disabilities he met with. The Theatre Royal in Wexford, which actually was built in 1832, was a rather small building, but I suppose it was quite adequate for what would have been a small town back in, in, in that time. I first went to the theatre, uh, it was just before the war actually, it was 1938 with John McCormack. It was his final tour of Ireland. Now, when we went to the theatre, it was in a very, very bad condition. And John McCormick was very, very disappointed on two points. But one was that uh, it being in such a poor condition. And uh, the other point was that there was another theatre which would have accommodation f for a lot more people. Actually, there were people could not get into the Theatre Royal on the occasion of, of his visit and concert there. 
But to speak of the theatre itself, you you get some idea when I tell you we were bringing a, a, a Steinway concert grand uh, into the theatre and the trolley on, on, on which it, it was being wheeled along went through the floorboards because the, the floor was completely rotten. And uh, to have to give a, a, a recital in a place like that, well, <laughs> it certainly wasn't the best. At that particular time, Sally Carroll was the person in charge of the Theatre Royal. And he misrepresented the capacity of the theatre. It caused a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of contention and argument about it because Mr Cooper, who was the manager for John McCormack at the time, took it for granted. He didn't go to Wexford and see the place for himself. All of which is a roundabout way of pointing to the extraordinary hurl. A beach's brook, one might say, which the theatre I must have presented for Dr. Walsh. I had met Dr. Walsh, and one of the forerunners to the advent of the operas in 1951 was Charles Lynch, who came there to give a piano recital. We borrowed the piano from Dr. Sinnott, of Rocklands, out beyond the Fahid. We took a Beckstein Grand Piano to the theatre for that particular recital. And I remember on one occasion being with Dr. Walsh and Charles Lynch. He talked about uh, his interest in developing opera within the area. And not many people, of course, thought at the time that he would ever see it brought to fruition. We tried to form an opera study circle here. And my good friend, Mr. Compton McKenzie, came and gave us an inaugural address. Now, the opera circle has gone on quite well since, but it is really just a means to an artistic end. For what we have in mind is the formation of a musical festival, which we hope it's very much in the air at the moment, but we hope that by next, say, October or November, that for some four or five days, we will have a musical festival running here in the town. Something on the side, in a much minor way, of the musical festivals which are now so popular in England. Now, the reason therefore of this festival will be the revival of some of the lesser-known operas and now-forgotten operas of Banff, such as the Maid of Artois, uh, the Siege of Rochelle, the Rose of Castile.
most important musician we have ever had living in Wexford, thing a point I think which not is not very generally known is where William Michael Balfe. He actually came from Dublin to here at a very early age and had his first music lessons here. They were given to him by a bandmaster in the militia band here, a man called Meadows. And incidentally, it's rather interesting to learn, as I think was in one of Ogle's journals I read, that at that time in Wexford, the militia band was very, very good. About lived for about something like two or three years here, I think. And during that time, he incidentally composed his first music here, a small piece of palakia, which was played by the band. I remember my first opera that I saw, a little, a little touring companies then used come to Wexford. And I remember my first opera that I saw, who was Rigoletto. And I simply fell in love with opera, the excitement of it, with the, the music, you see, added so much to the spoken dialogue. And I was quite young then, I was only one of them. But from that on, I simply just took to opera and have been at it ever since in one form or other. as it was always described, of, say, 12 to 14, and with, uh, with uh, the woodwind put in on a harmonium. Full chorus of three, perhaps, doubling as uh, smaller parts. But the only thing about them all, there were some very, very good singers among them. Now, I can still remember a baritone called Flintoff Moore, who I, older people still remember well in Ireland and England. I can remember a man less well-known, a man called Michael Kemble. He was a little man. And I always feel that he had, thinking back, I mean, I used to hold his hand in an odd way by his side, and it seemed to be a little shake, as if he had paralysis agitans. But I know it is very funny because it became fashionable in places like Wexford, then if you're a local baritone singer, you sort of had, held your hand like Michael <laughs> Kember pressing it down and, and letting it shake a little. This was the way one sang well, because he sang well. And there was a girl called Ina Hill who had started way back about 19, 1920, uh, she had sung in the English season in Cotton Garden. I remember her coming. Now, her trill was one of the most wonderful things I've ever heard in my life. Her trill was as good as Joan Sutherland's or somebody like that. Now, by the time she came to Wexford, <clears throat> naturally, she wasn't at her best. But you, you, got quite, you got quite an impression of opera here 
because the theatre was so small, it was all so intimate, and because you had no standards to go by, and, and also because there's no such thing as even wires, no television, no radio. You had some gramophone records, perhaps, but this at least was something live and something immediate and something that you could catch on. Uh, they'd come at least once a year, and possibly occasionally twice a year, but usually once a year for about a week. And it always starts with something like a uh, marathon, something simple, and then work into the um, trovatories and the regulators and things like that. And always end again with something uh, popular like the Bohemian Girl on the last night.
And of course, again, then the, the, the audience were audiences were very unsophisticated, including myself and that. And one knew all the ballad airs and all the airs from these popular operas. You must remember when we started, there was no money. What money we had was what we had in our pockets, of five or six of us. There's no backing from Arts Council or Board Forge or anything like that. I'm not suggesting there should have been, but there just wasn't. And, of course, the whole social structure of the country was entirely different. It's not a question that more people now go to concerts and more people go to race meetings, more people have drinks, more people go out to dinner at night, more people go to Spain for their holidays. I mean, it's a different social structure existing. And one consequently had one to cut, very much cut one's cloth to measure. What really influenced me in opera, in fact, as far as Wexford was concerned, was when I went to Glyndebourne, and that was in 1939. And I remember the first opera I saw there was the Nazi di Figaro. And I've never been so, if you like, impressed by anything, because never had I could, could I imagine a production of an opera to be so beautiful, so exquisite in style, decor, costumes, and so logical. Consequently, when, you, when the Wexford Festival started, what did I think of? I thought of Glyndebourne, and that's why there's such an association with Glyndebourne, because I went straight for Peter Ebert, who was then assisting his father there. in London in March 1951. I went into Foyle's bookshop to look for some books and I saw there a programme of uh, the Alborough Festival of 1949 and on the cover of this programme there was a drawing of a lifeboat being pushed out to sea and it reminded me of something I had often seen in Wexford when I was a boy. On that particular evening, I was going down to spend the night with Compton Mackenzie, who then lived in Denchworth. And I got the idea that we could have a little festival in Wexford in some way. And I asked him, would he help? And he agreed, and he did, and that is how the Wexford Festival was born. But that was the easy part. Between March in Denchworth and November in Wexford, a full-scale opera had to be assembled and performed. An orchestra and conductor negotiated for, soloists sought and auditioned, a producer and designer, scene painters, lighting and sound. Aidan Fulham was asked to record the culmination of these efforts. I took the train down to Wexford, and it was autumn time, and I still remember vividly the 
fantastic number of shades of greens, yellows, of the leaves of the trees as the train passed by. It was a most magical moment. Then, having arrived in Wexford and left my bag at the hotel, I went immediately to see the venue for the Wexford Festival Opera. When I got to the foyer at the theatre, there were people very, very busy with hammers, etc., etc. There were the ladies uh, putting up floral decorations of dried flowers and so on. And then I stepped into the theatre and nearly ran home. I couldn't believe how small the theatre was, how acoustically dead it was even before an audience came in, and in general the place, to put it mildly, was badly in need of uh, a cleaning. Then I came back to the hotel, which was White's Hotel, and it turned out to be a most marvellous centre for the Wexford Festival. Uh, Eugene McCarthy, who was the mater d', as the Americans would call it, was a marvellous, quiet, efficient man, very heavily involved with Tom Walsh and Dr. French, in the organization of the festival. But what struck me most of all, and my happiest memories of the Wexford Festival, was in fact the camaraderie that existed between the visiting principals of the opera, the conductor, the producer, designer, and so on, and various members of the orchestra who stayed in the hotel. Meals were a marvelous occasion, there was no setting apart of the principles of the opera at one table and somebody else at another table. There was a large table and some side tables. You just took your place at whatever point you felt you could sit down. In 1951, the then Radio Wern, which was, as the civil servants would say, part of the Department of Post and Telegraph's wireless broadcasting section, was not equipped to deal with opera and things of that nature as outside broadcasts. I had just returned from the BBC where I had been sent for training. I joined in September of 51 and the Wexford Festival dropped into my lap some six weeks later. I was officially assigned to the Director of Music, Fachno Hanukhain. The equipment uh, in use nowadays would be regarded as very, very antique, and therefore made it extremely difficult to separate the orchestral accompaniments from the performance on stage. It was quite impossible to get a room where one could set up the equipment and have a monitoring loudspeaker which would enable one to hear the various contributions of the different microphones. We eventually ended up in a corner under the stage in Stygian darkness. The ubiquitous Dr. Tom Walsh was, of course, the driving force behind everything. He seemed to be in several places at once, and I will never forget his reaction on the very first morning, the first orchestral rehearsal, where it was found that the then very sparse in numbers light orchestra could not fit into the space that was allocated for the uh, orchestral pit. 
He nearly had a seizure, understandably, because he probably was already thinking that he was well on his way to bankruptcy. Eventually, he saw the point that he couldn't possibly have the opera without the orchestra, so consequently the seats had to go. Aidan Fulham. By the summer of 1951, the prospects for the performance of Balfe's Rose of Castile were good and gathering momentum. Frank Murphy, the manager of the National Concert Hall, was then a horn player with the Radio and Light Orchestra, and he remembers his impressions of Wexford as the emissary of the then director of music, Faulkner O'Hanricon. It was great excitement for months beforehand. Faulkner O'Hanricon instructed me to go down and find out what it was all about. So I went down the first time and met Dr Walsh and Eugene McCarthy to discuss RTEs. Not RTEs then, it was RE then. Radio Weirden's involvement in the thing. So I met them many times after that until we came to the actual shows itself and the two weeks. We spent two weeks there and we loved the place. We really loved the place. And uh, I got the job then. I was playing horn. I was also doing manager and librarian. The first thing is I had to order the music and we got the music from Goodwin and Tabs in London. And of course, pre that, I had to also go down and book guest houses for all the orchestra. And I remember there were some famous ones. There was The Fight, and there was also uh, Mrs. Redmond's in Georgia Street, where most of the brass always stayed. Some of us stayed in the Talbot Hotel, where we got a full day's board for seven and sixpence. And as far as I can remember, a very well-known hotelier was, was manager, and that was Paddy Fitzpatrick from Killiney Castle. And it appeared to me that the whole town was involved in Wexford in those days. They would do the carpentry work. It was a desolate place. It was a shabby theatre. Uh, there was no room for the orchestra, so we took out seats to make a pit. And they, they, I think it was one of the uh, chorus actually was doing the carpentry work. Uh, Nick, Nick Rossiter, I think. And we put a curtain across, and that became an orchestral pit. And, uh, of course, the orchestra was much too loud in that situation for the opera. So afterwards I understood, uh, which they did, I was there for it, they lowered the pit. And, of course, the pit was a bit too low because Demer O'Hara was a very small man. So we had to raise him on a box so he could see the stage. But anyway, everything went very well. And the opening night, I remember, and, and the rehearsals, they all, the whole town was part of this. There wasn't just anyone, but the whole town, the queues to get into dress rehearsals. And the ladies decorated that place, you wouldn't recognise it. And uh, we had a lot of problems with singers, of course, and at that time, because Wexford in those days was very, very cold and damp. There was no central heating anywhere. And the singers all got these colds. And I can remember Dr. Walsh standing in the, in the fire of the theatre, handing out coloured tablets for them all. I don't know whether it ever did any good for them or not, but he was, it was a great thing to see him handing out all these multicoloured tablets. Uh, so that was the show. The first night of the show went very well, but uh, it was a great success. And uh, the orchestra was too loud, we had to admit that. Then there was other things happened. Uh, the floor of the stalls wasn't an ideal place because people were looking over the railings at us. Uh, there was a haunted house next door to us falling down and we used to rotate the players. We used to go into practice different times ourselves, each player who wants to do his private practice. 
the other uh, great impression I had of Wexford was there was always a lovely smell of fresh bread. It seemed to be there was nothing but bakeries in, in Wexford Town at the time. And Eugene McCarthy of White's Hotel, I remember him with great affection. He was called the Moneybags, but he was a very kind and helpful gentleman. Dr French I also remember, Nellie Walsh, Sean Mitten, a good friend, and Nick Russell, good friend, and Father Gall, who was a particular friend of Tommy King's. And I'm afraid that Father Gall and Tommy used to play a lot of poker up in St. Peter's. The other great characters around at that time were music critics, Archie Potter and Bob Johnson. They were super. Of course, the people of Wexford were our great friends, and they really took us in tow and looked after us. They took us to the heart. We were great friends with all the people of Wexford. Another great character was our conductor, Demer O'Hara. Now, Dermot would every day parade up and down the main street with a, a yellow crumby overcoat cast around the shoulders, black sunglasses and a red uh, berry in the middle of October, which was great amusement for the locals. They loved them. Every time they came up, you could see them stopping and staring and laughing. Personally, I loved Wexford, but I've never been back since the day we left. And someday I might go back to it. And uh, it, sadly, there are only a few of the players alive today. And uh, as you well know, Marcus, the Light Orchestra were a wonderful bunch of people. And all I can say is, I'll go back someday. Norris Davidson was a presenter on radio of The Rose of Castile. But even before he departed from Henry Street for Wexford, he encountered turbulence of an operatic nature. In Henry Street, I got word that they were going to put on an opera in Wexford, which seemed uh, very strange, but I think it was really being treated as a performance of some kind of light variety show or something. Anyhow, I was to go down and look at it, make a feature about it, see, describe everything that happened, record everything that happened, which I did. The um, producer was to have been John Stevenson, who objected riotously to the conditions that were, were laid down. It was to be produced in the manner of the Commedia dell'arte. John Stevenson said, if it's going to be bloody well produced at all, it'll be produced in the manner of John Stevenson. So uh, he backed out and they, and they got a, a producer from England. So I went down and had a look at the theatre, which had been a theatre with, with boxes, and then it was transferred, changed to a cinema. Anyhow, it seemed to me very dark and very damp and impossible. And of course, it looked so much smaller than it does. It doesn't look terribly big now, but very much smaller. We had to work below the stage. I and Aidan Fowler, which was rather horrifying because um, we could not only hear through a thin partition, we could hear the orchestra playing, but through equally thin stage floor, we could hear them singing and walking about over our heads. Um, we sat on a bench, it looked to me as well as I remember, it was an army table on an army bench, very close to some heaps, sacks of coke, and there was a door that opened out onto the, onto the yard. 
It was a wonder how um, it was put on. There was a heater on the stage, about the only thing, and I think it worked too. I remember seeing John Denise Moriarty going over to it and raising one leg up, 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 like a railway signal to get some warmth, because she was doing a Spanish dance. Um, I remember the two principals, of course, who became engaged. Um, Maria Dickey and, uh, what was her name, Springer, was it? I think so. Um, and when they came back to the hotel, I know the waiter there used to lock them in to have their supper undisturbed. He saw the way things were going, but they'd fallen in love. Another person I remember was a very tall Spanish grandee. I went home and I got him a, a huge ebony-topped cane that I have, really huge. It was called a running footman's cane. He was the, the husband of uh, Sheila Larcher, the harpist. But of course it was not the symphony orchestra. Uh, now the other things that I did around it, um, such as having my hair cut and recording the barber's comments at the same time, and the barber, whose name was Nicky Swords, didn't think much of the idea of the festival. I couldn't get anyone who thought anything of it. Uh, it's all very well for them. Uh, kind of attitude, uh, amazement and wonder. Very few people were enthusiastic. The work was done by the three doctors, Dr. Walsh, Dr. Des French from uh, Rosler, and Dr. Liddy from Oilgate. I think Dr. Liddy dropped out of it rather soon. But they and people like Nellie Walsh uh, and others who did scenery, made costumes, everything. It was, it was, in spite of the rather casual view of, of local people, of what it was going to be like, the people who were working there really were working their heads off uh, to get it on. Nothing had been done about the acoustics. And I don't know what the recordings sounded like. I've never heard them, but I believe they exist. They are to be found somewhere, just as my introductory script is to be found somewhere, uh, which I consider appalling. And find them we did. Of course, nowadays it's only a matter of consulting the library computer and up pops the information. The Wexford Festival of Music and the Arts, the Theatre Royal, Wexford, the 1st of November, the Rose of Castile. Curiosity drove me to discover what Norris Davidson had made of the convoluted story to the Rose of Castile. Here he is stepping adroitly through the intricacies of the plot, followed by an aria from Maureen Springer, which, thankfully, hasn't suffered the ravages of time. The conspirators now think up a wonderful plan. They'll disguise the peasant girl, as they still take her to be, as the queen, whom she resembles so remarkably. Kidnap the real queen and marry the disguised queen to the muleteer. The people will be furious about the misalliance and will depose her putting Don Pedro on the throne instead. So now, if you follow me, we have the Queen dressed up as a peasant girl, compelled to disguise herself as herself. Is that clear? Shall I try to... Um, well, no, we'll let it go. Maintaining that she is truly a peasant maid, the Queen agrees. Woodland rain. 
everything went very well. And the opening night... The camaraderie that existed between the principals, the conductor, the producer, designer and members of the orchestra... But the whole time, the cues to get into dress rehearsal. Not many people, of course, thought at the time that it would ever see it brought to fruition. Quite a remarkable thing, I remember. I was uh, the, going home one night to White's Hotel. I met Dr. Walsh and the manager of White's coming out, and Wellen said, Do you know what we've been talking about? Uh, so I said, Well, I hope it's about the future of this. And they said, It is. It's not what we're going to do next year, it's what we're going to do the year after that. There was faith. Mm-hmm. 